sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Good day. It is the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and we are at episode 59. Now, just last week, I was a little down that I've been doing this podcast for over one year, and American democracy hasn't fundamentally changed yet, as I'd really budgeted a six-month timeline for this thing. So, for this episode, I interviewed Douglas Amy, Professor Emeritus of Politics at Mount Holyoke University, who has dedicated decades of his career towards studying political systems around the world, the positive impacts of having a proportional system of representation on democracies, and promoting its adoption as a way to improve government here in the U.S. Now, I would call him the Chuck Berry of the American proportional representation movement, but he's really more of a British invasion as he took something that worked across the Atlantic and brought it here. The analogy is not important. What is important is his new site. Did you like that little segue there? What is important is his new site, secondratedemocracy.com, which outlines the 17 ways that make American government less responsive to the will of its citizens than other peer nations and some of the reforms we can implement to fix that. We talk about some of these reforms and how the root of many of these problems we see in government are a direct result of our winner-take-all system of elections. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. Doug, I, I, I always save my hardest question for first, Doug. So to start off, could you tell our listeners who you are and, and what you do? Uh, my name is Douglas Amy. Um, I'm a retired professor of politics at Mount Holyoke College. Mm-hmm. Um, and these days, um, I'm mostly working on a, a web project that I just finished up called um, uh, Second Rate Democracy, 17 Ways America is Less Democratic Than Other Major Western Countries and How We Can Do Better. But I spent most of my academic career actually writing about um, different kinds of voting systems and the advantages of proportional representation elections. Yeah. And one thing I'll do too is for the folks listening, uh, I will share a number of resources uh, that Doug's produced, uh, books, websites, and whatnot on uh, on the show notes online. So so check them out. There's, there's a lot to, to dig into. Um, now, going on to second-rate democracy, um, which is a lovely title, by the way, <laughs> um, you know, what prompted you to, to, to launch that site? I think what ultimately prompted me was uh, the courses that I taught at Mount Holyoke. Um, I taught a lot of courses in American politics, uh, particularly the introductory course uh, in American politics. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned is that, you know, I think my students, like most Americans, were very frustrated with American politics and felt like it wasn't really, they weren't really being heard and so forth by people in government. And so they, they had a good idea that something was broken, that something wasn't working right. Mm-hmm. But I think they were less clear about what that was. Um, I think the tendency of a lot of people is to blame politicians. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't know, if you don't like what's going on in the Senate, well, it's, it's Mitch McConnell's problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's the problem. And a lot of what I looked at in my course was uh, different. I mean, what I was arguing in the course is that most of the problems we have with democracy in the United States are institutional in nature. They have to do with our political institutions. 
um, rather than, you know, individual politicians. And that we have to understand that if we're going to fix these problems, because institutional problems require institutional solutions. Mm-hmm. And then it, as part of that, as, more and more as I taught that course, I also realized that students did not really have much of an idea that of the different way that, that democracy works in other countries. You know, we sort of grew up in the United States. We just assume that, you know, for example, that everybody appoints Supreme Court justices for life. Well, in fact, almost no one does that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had an increasing sort of comparative dimension where I would compare our democratic institutions, like our voting system, for example, to those used in Europe, which is mostly proportional representation. And, you know, using those as kind of to illuminate what these institutional problems are in the United States and to show that, in fact, they're unnecessary. I mean, a lot of democracies uh, do better than we do in terms of uh, representing people and so on. So I kind of put all that together when I retired. I said, well, I think this is something that could use a wider audience. Um, And so I put it all together into this uh, rather large website. Yeah, it's funny. And when I started this podcast, what I was ultimately looking for was the nonpartisan solution to a lot of the problems. Cause I, I did see that uh, the level of partisanship we've, we've reached today has really made it impossible to have that productive political dialogue you need. It's really, I, I think in a lot of ways, our, our voters are kind of proxies in a war between two rival factions more right. than, you know, more than they are kind of expressing their will, which the government is executing on. I want to jump into those issues you outlined, but just to maybe set the stage for the folks listening, can you talk about how you would evaluate a good democracy from, let's say, a not so good one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, let me go back a second. You know, if you go back into the 20th century and you look at how people were, you know, trying to talk about democracy, it was mostly about, you know, is your country democratic or not? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, you know, World War II, for example, um, you know, the big issue was, you know, you have these totalitarian regimes fighting against democracy or mm-hmm. the Cold War, you know, it was like, you know, the, the Soviet Union, you know, uh, totalitarianism versus democracy. Um, But in the 21st century, certainly among Western democracies, the real issue is not whether they're democratic or not, but how democratic they are. How well do they function as a democracy? Um, And I'm pretty critical of American democracy. um, Mm -hmm. And the way that I got that way was, is that, and, and the way that you kind of measure how democratic a country is, is by looking at, you know, basic democratic standards and principles and, and say, well, how well do we measure up to some of these things? Um, a good example would be majority rule. I mean, it's kind of basic, you know, uh, democracy is based on majority rule. I mean, it's something we, mm-hmm. we learn as children. Um, but it's, it's sometimes shocking, I think, to Americans to realize how often that uh, principle is violated in American politics. And there's, you know, lots of examples. I mean, you know, the Electoral College is a perfect example of how a minority can end up, you know, electing the president. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. you know, in the Senate, you know, you have the filibuster, which allows a minority to block uh, legislation that's favored by the majority. And, and so as you go down through these institutions, you see that, well, you know, majority rule doesn't always, you know, hold sway. Uh, there's lots of other principles like fair representation. You know, you want your political institutions, your legislative institutions to, you know, represent the range of political views in the society accurately. I mean, that's how you kind of 
a democracy should work so that it represents everybody and then passes laws that are in the public interest. But again, and I, you know, and you're very aware, aware of this, you know, our winner take all sort of system um, and our two party system doesn't always reflect that uh, accurately, uh, the public sentiments. Uh, in many states, you know, uh, the Republican Party is overrepresented and the Democratic Party is underrepresented and vice versa. Um, and third parties basically get no representation. Minor parties don't in the United States. So if you compare us to a lot of European democracies, they have multi-party systems, you know, with, with some major parties, some minor parties in their legislatures that I argue really represent more faithfully the, the kind, the range of political opinion in those countries. So that's another, you know, uh, criterion. There's there's one thing I, I, I want to jump in here and you to kind of pull back the curtain for the folks listening. You know, anytime I, I meet with someone, I always kind of send over an outline. And a lot of times I am overly ambitious with with what I want to cover. And Doug mercifully killed the idea of, of talking about federalism from the from from the conversation. And I'm going to honor that request because I do think that would take us down a rabbit hole. But but one one question for you, I, I, I do think that that concept is often revered. Um, and and the whole I and I would say the whole idea more so of like the tyranny of the majority, so to speak. Right. Do you feel like do you feel like that's been disproven maybe by years of American history? In what sense do you, do you mean that? Well, I, I guess I guess you you, you talk about uh, the whole concept of majority rule, and and one oh, of the right. things about our our structure is that we are designed to be responsive to the majority, but in some cases provide safeguards uh, against uh, a particular political minority or or, or group uh, being uh, overly dominated. Uh, by that majority. And some of the institutions you cite obviously are designed as safeguards to that. Do you right. feel like that, that maybe that concept has been disproven or maybe the, the, the medicines worse than the disease in this case? I think probably the latter. And I think that's a good yeah. analogy. I, I think that we've gone way too far um, in trying to empower uh, minorities um, through some of these things like the filibuster, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And to the point where I would argue we really have more tyranny of the minority in the United States. That's really mm-hmm. the problem we're facing, yeah. um, which is worse, I would argue, than tyranny of the majority. Um, that, um, you know, there are so many policies that, you know, sometimes a very large majority of the Americans want to see in place. You know, like they want more gun control. They mm-hmm. want more uh, uh, legislation about global warming. They want a higher minimum wage. You, know, you just go down a whole list and Congress just fails to act, you know, um, often because there's a minority that can block legislation uh, that the majority wants. So I would say that's really the problem we're facing in many of our institutions um, is uh, the tyranny of majority. Yeah. Okay. Uh, excuse me, minority. Understood. Understood. That's as far into federalism I'm going to venture, Doug. Okay. Just, that's fine. Just, but, but no, that's, that's extremely helpful. And, and, in terms of, you know, kind of getting back to what makes a good democracy, then the way I'm f- going to phrase it is going to sound a little stupid, but it, 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 it's really now it, it's no longer a question of are you allowed to vote for more than one candidate in an election, which was the question we asked maybe pre fall of the Iron Curtain or maybe earlier. Now, the question is, how responsive is your government to those votes effectively? Is that does that sum it up? OK, um, now. 
getting into then the, the 17 issues you cite, and again, set, teeing it up for folks, you know, we won't get them, get to them all today, but you can get it on secondratedemocracy.com. Um, a lot of the issues you mentioned, so you know, campaign finance, lobbying, gerrymandering, voter turnout, um, and the two-party duopoly, they all seem to have their roots in our, in our winner-take-all electoral system. And would you say, is that a fair assessment, would you say, or am I wrongheaded here? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, and again, I think it's something that a lot of people don't understand, in part because it's not something that gets much, uh, much press. People don't talk yeah. about, you know, our voting system or our electoral system. Um, we just assume that, well, winner take all voting. That's just the way you vote. Yeah. Um, and we don't realize that, in fact, most other Western democracies have you know, rejected that for what they think is better, which is proportional representation. And the reason that they have in many cases is because of all the problems that can be traced back, as you were saying, to this winner-take-all system. Mm-hmm. And one of them, as you mentioned, is the fact that we have uh, you know, a two-party duopoly when, again, majority of Americans say they want a multi-party system. Um, you know, we don't have fair representation um, of different parties and groups. Um, we have low voter turnout. I would argue, you know, a large part of that has to do with our winner-take-all system. Mm-hmm. Um, we have gerrymandering, <laughs> you know, kind of mm-hmm. the curse of winner-take-all single-member district um, elections. And again, um, uh, you know, if you uh, look at uh, European democracies that have uh, proportional representation, you can't have gerrymandering. Right? Yep. So a lot of these problems, that's true, can be traced back to the winner-take-all system that we kind of all take for granted. And is there is there evidence to, or do you have any examples of cases where, um, where let's say, for example, voter participation, voter participation is lower due to winner-take-all or due to gerrymandering? Yeah, no, well, voter turnout, that's a complicated issue. You know, there's lots okay. of things that affect voter turnout. And, but, you know, there's a lot of p- smart political scientists that have kind of, you know, try to tease these things apart and yeah. figure out, you know, what difference does it make if you're voting on the weekend, for example, versus, you know, on a Tuesday. Sure. Um, and so one of the things they've looked at is what effect do voting systems have? Particularly, mm-hmm. you know, what's the difference between turnout in a winner-take-all system like we have or Canada has uh, and a proportional representation system? And they estimate that it makes you know somewhere around an eight to ten percent difference. Okay, that if you have PR, um, you're going to have you know about eight to ten percent uh, higher turnout, which might sound small, but we're th- that's millions and millions and millions of people. Um, oh yeah, and so that's uh, you know it's 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 clear that our winner take all system plays some role um, in discouraging voter turnout in the United States. Yeah, well, I, I think about you know the state we're both talking in, Massachusetts, or conversely, we could point to a deep red state like you know Mississippi, Alabama, for example. And during any presidential election, your vote effectively uh, doesn't really matter all that much because it's so clear where it's going to tilt. Right. Um, and another example I'd cite, which I find baffling, is you know I I will dig into the you know, the midterm election results for, uh, for Massachusetts, just to see kind of what the, what the percentages look like, you know, there's usually about 20% across the state that vote Republican. Right. Um, and, and in my mind, in, in my mind, I think what our system does is it sacrifices the moderates, you know, cause one would argue if you were going to get elected as a Republican in Massachusetts, sure, you're going to 
subscribe to some party orthodoxy, uh, but you certainly can't be as as deep red as let's say again somebody in mississippi and vice right. versa right yeah what other effects obviously partisanship is a negative side effect of, of gerrymandering and of winner take all right. you know, in terms of how this shapes the incentives and behaviors of those in office can you talk a little bit about that uh yeah i mean i guess i would say first that it 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 affects behavior before they get into office that is mm-hmm. it affects uh the way people campaign yeah um you know, in a winner-take-all system, you get you have to get a lot of votes to win. Mm-hmm. You have to have, uh, you know, at least a plurality, you know, maybe 40% or maybe hopefully a majority. But you need lots and lots of votes. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there's kind of an incentive for politicians to not want to alienate people, you know, um, because, you know, the more people they alienate, the harder it's going to be to get this, you know, a uh, large number of votes they need. So they tend to hedge on things. They might be kind of a little bit dishonest about where they really stand on issues and so forth. Um, And so a lot of times it's, it's a little, you know, there's kind of an incentive to be a little deceptive and maybe a lot deceptive in order to ensure that you can get as many votes as you, you need to win. Um, And then that makes it more questionable whether you're going to keep those promises, you know, once you get elected, um, but what's interesting about proportional representation um, elections is that, you know, you can be politicians and parties can be totally honest about where they stand and still win. You know, mm-hmm. They don't have to get 40 or 50 percent of the vote. You know, a Green Party candidate, you know, only has to get, you know, 10 or 15 percent of the vote, you know, for, for that party to, you know, to win a seat. So you can alienate a lot of people with your stance. Right. And still win as long as there's a substantial minority that believes in your position. So I think it really encourages uh, politicians to be much more upfront mm-hmm. about where they stand, where their party stands, be much more specific. Um, and then once they're in office, you know, they tend to keep their promises, I think, more. Um, yeah. Because, you know, again, there's no disincentive to do that. Yeah. So that's that's one thing, I think, is, is before um, the elections. It, it changes the way campaigns work. And then yeah. afterwards, I think the, the, the two-party system – and the winner-take-all, you know, system that creates that really has a very strong effect on party behavior. I mean, if you look at Congress, you know, if it's a two-party system, each party is slugging it out because they want to get the majority so they can rule all by themselves mm-hmm. without any interference from anyone. This, you know, and this is part of what's driving this kind of polarization. You know, it's just like no compromise, you know, with the other party. We're going to win and we're going to do exactly what we want. But this is very different than what happens in countries that have proportional representation. Um, because there they have multiple parties, you know, in the legislatures, in the parliaments, and no one party can win a majority usually by themselves. So there's usually multi-party coalitions that rule. There'll be like a large party, a couple of small parties. Um, and that's the ruling coalition. But that changes the culture of how parties interact. So the assumption in these systems is that parties are going to cooperate, that they're going to compromise, that they're going to work together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you're not seen as, um, you know, a traitor to your party um, if you realize that compromise is necessary in order to get a good piece of legislation through. And there's some evidence also that, you know, multi-party coalitions, because they represent all these different parties, tend to produce uh, public policies that are most more inclusive as well of, of groups in society. 
So, yeah, I think there's some important uh, sort of behavioral changes that would, would come about if we had uh, proportional representation instead of winner-take-all elections. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment with Doug Amy. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I hope it's making clear what should be conventional wisdom, that a good democracy is one that listens to its citizens. Ours does not, because it doesn't have to. Our system is set up to reward the person who wins 51% of the vote with everything, leaving 49% of voters unheard. And by making it so parties in Congress win a percentage of seats according to their percentage of the popular vote, we can make a system that's immune to gerrymandering, where members of Congress either listen to their voters or lose seats, making listening to their constituents great again. Now, some of you might be thinking that's too big of a feat, but I would remind you that sitting senators who were once appointed by state legislators passed a constitutional amendment making them directly elected, proving that there is no force that can outlast an indefatigable opponent and widespread public opinion. That indefatigable opponent is me, and I'm hoping it's you too, because we need more people like me and you to get the word out. So please, share YDHTY right now on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever else you and your kooky friends commits. You can also sign up for my weekly email at YDHTY.com or reach me via the hashtag YDHTY. Did I say YDHTY enough to let me know what you're thinking on social media? As always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. You know, I think one of the big fears people have here is that if you do a proportional system, you're going to have just this wide array of kooky parties that all have some, all have crazy ideas going into government. But right. really what I've seen, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is in proportional systems, it still tends to break up into two kind of larger center-right, center-left parties that will, like you said, form coalitions or cooperate with minor parties on either the, the further right or further left end of the spectrum, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, you know I've given a lot of talks about PR to groups in society, in, in, our, in American society, and that's one concern people have. They say, well, geez, you know, it's hard to get legislation through with two parties. How can you do it with five parties? And I, and I say basically exactly what you said is that the way it really works uh, in most, uh, most of these countries is that there's sort of a coalition, a sort of center-left coalition and a center-right coalition. So yeah. it's not hard to imagine, like in the United States, there might be a coalition between, let's say, you know, a large Democratic Party and then a couple of smaller parties on the left. Maybe there's a kind of like a, you know, Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist Party or something or mm-hmm. a Green Party. Um, and they all, you know, form a coalition um, and can pass legislation, you know, very efficiently. Yeah, that's that's always how I've in, how I've envisioned it or how I see it going. And you know, I think certainly you, you may have your radical elements that win a voice, but I, I think the two advantages is. You know, number one, uh, you you could assume that that they're going to be the minority, and number two, I think probably more importantly, a major party isn't going to have to court them. And uh, I think even you look at the last four years, and there have been, I would argue, credible allegations of of Trump 
at least giving deference to uh, white supremacists or white nationalists. Here. Right. Right. And, uh, and again, in, in a PR system, he wouldn't, he wouldn't need their support. Um, kind of getting to another subject here. Uh, you know, when I, when I started this, this podcast, um, originally it started as a, as a project around campaign finance reform and uh-huh. you know, what I, yeah. And, and what I discovered, it was interesting. I, I looked into campaign finance laws and what I realized is that, um, is that if you look at countries that have that rank much higher in terms of voter satisfaction and electoral transparency, you know, their their finance laws are different, but mm-hmm. there's no kind of epic shift or, or or epic difference between how elections are financed over in other like a country like Germany and here, um, with two exceptions. You know, number one is is that in in countries with in, in Europe, Europe, for example, um, it's far easier to pass a law that defines political speech than it is here. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot easier to say, hey, that's campaigning and you can only do that X number of times. Whereas, right. you know, any campaign finance law just gets ground up in the Supreme Courts under First Amendment, uh, under right. the under the First Amendment. Um, but the second part and, and I, the thing that turned me on to PR was, you know, all of these countries have proportional systems of representation. And is there, does a PR system, is it less prone to uh, the influence of money in politics, let's say, than our system? Um, yeah, they are uh, for, for several reasons. Um, one is that, um, I mean, there's, there's several things that's different about campaign finance, I think, in these countries. One doesn't have to do with PR and one does. Um, mm-hmm. The one that doesn't is that uh, a lot of these countries rely mostly on public money rather than private money. Mm-hmm. And that helps a lot. Uh, but some do still rely on some private money. But the private money in most of these cases um, does not go to individual people's uh, running for office. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in PR, you don't run as an individual. You run as a part of a, a party slate. Right. There's, there's you and you, the other Republicans that are running right uh, for office or the other Democrats or the other Green Party people, whoever. And so the donations uh, that are made privately go to the parties rather t- than to individuals. Um, and I think that makes a difference um, because, uh, you know, donations to uh, individual people in Congress is one of the big door openers for lobbyists. You know, mm-hmm. studies have shown that when people go to lobby someone in Congress, if they can show that they've been, you know, making big donations, their chances of getting in and lobbying directly are much higher. Mm-hmm. You know, so special interest influence, I think, works much better when you can give money to individuals than you can to mm-hmm. parties. So I think by switching that around and by giving it to parties, um, it, it, it diminishes at least somewhat uh, the role that special interest money has. Got it. And that's, I mean, I've always thought just in theory, it's a lot more difficult, number one, to buy off five parties than it is two. Uh, and, right. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's a lot more expensive. And, and number two, uh, it's a lot more difficult, I think, for a mistruth to exist. Uh, because right now we have Team Red Factual Universe and Team Blue Factual Universe. Right. Yeah, and and the two have their own media apparatus, and uh, and and it, it it does allow that echo chamber where I think that becomes a lot more difficult when there are more uh, folks involved. Um, right. it, it's interesting you bring up 
campaign donations as being a, a really more of a gateway to lobbying. Because uh, one of the things I'm kind of ashamed to say I discovered recently, you know, for somebody who who claims to have studied campaign finances, you know, the majority of money goes to goes to lobbyists, doesn't it? So it doesn't even yes. go to campaign. Now that's yeah, that's a very interesting fact. And again, I think something that a lot of people aren't aware of. People, I think, are pretty aware of you know the role that corporate money, you know, uh, and business money plays um, in a, in elections in the United States. Mm-hmm. But as as you were saying, in fact. For them, that's not the real game. The real game for them and where they think they can get the most for their their investment is in lobbying. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they'll you know they'll give money, you know, they have the corporate PACs and so on, and they'll give money to people um, and they'll try to elect the people that they like, but they know that that's just the beginning of the game, the political game, that the long-term, you know, uh, real game starts when Congress starts meeting and you start talking about what legislation is going to be passed. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. want to have a lot of lobbyists. I mean, one of the things that I point out on, on the website is that, you know, just the discrepancy in the, in the amount of uh, lobbying power that you see in this country, the environmental groups, you know, if you look at them as a, as a total, they have about 300 lobbyists, you know, that are at work in Congress. And mm-hmm. you say, well, gee, that sounds like a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at the, you know, the five uh, sort of top industry groups that oppose environmental legislation like uh, oil and gas and, you know, others that easily uh, are trying to defeat environmental legislation. Just those five industry groups have 4,000 lobbyists on their behalf. That's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like that in a, and, and how do I put this? I, 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 it, it, it would seem to me that that effect would almost give an inordinate amount of power to the to to incumbents as well, uh, because again, the at that point your value is not necessarily uh, are your voters happy? Can you get reelected? I mean, obviously that has an impact, but your real value is how what is your ability to sway influence. Right. And, and, and again, you're going to have more industries contributing to your campaign, even though those industries may not operate in your state or district, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Got so it. what happens is, you know, the longer you're in Congress and uh, presumably if you could, you know, get in a gerrymandered district that, you know, uh, gets you, you know, reelected to the house and so on. Um, uh, as you get into leadership positions, the more valuable you are. Uh, mm-hmm. to lobbyists, you know, so if you're the head of the committee or something like that. Um, and so the people in leadership positions usually get enormous amounts of money. Sometimes they get so much money that they can't even use it all. And so they form a, their own little pack and they distribute it to their friends in Congress. But yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And so in, if we, if we shift over into super PACs, which are, are, are very much focused on campaigning, right. Um, are those typically industry driven then, or are those more like ideologues? Like I'm thinking of um, Sheldon Adelson, for example. Right, right. Well, that's been an interesting development. When, when uh, you know, when you had that Supreme Court decision, and it sort of opened the floodgates to you know donate money to super PACs, there was a very large concern that 
it was going to be corporate dominated, that this was sort of like a green light for the corporations. And they're really going to start pouring money into to super PACs. It's turned out that has not been the case. Uh, mm-hmm. now, yeah, they contribute some. Um, but, you know, they tend to be, I think, a little shy about doing it because in many cases it's publicly known, right? And they, you know, they want to sell stuff to everybody. Uh, so they've been hesitant to do that. And what has sort of taken up the vacuum has been uh, basically rich people, billionaires. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that totally have dominated the super PAC uh, donations. A very, very small percentage of uh, the, the population donates almost all the money to super PACs. Okay. Yeah, because it, it doesn't seem like, again, if I'm, if I'm thinking aloud here, if I'm a, an industry head and I want access to a politician for uh, political influence, again, it seems like the most cost-effective way is going to be a nice, tidy little donation uh, right. within the contribution cap and then a big check to my lobbyists. Right, um, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so shifting gears to the land of what could be then, um, you know, we have, we have a couple different PR systems out there. Um, I, in one episode we, we covered Ireland system, which is, uh, rather confusing, but, but not impossible. Right. Do, do, do you feel there's a particular country we could mimic that would work really well in the U S well, that's a tricky question. I mean, you, uh, you kind of say, you know, which would be the best PR system to use? Yeah. Um, and that's a complicated question. I mean, I tend to like, you know, the party list sort of system. That's the most common form of proportional representation that's used in mm-hmm. most European countries. But um, in the United States, we uh, have a history of using a different kind. Uh, in fact, the kind that's used in Ireland, uh, uh, political scientists call it the single transferable vote. Uh, here yes. we call it, you know, ranked choice voting. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it was in fact used in about twenty-five cities during the twentieth century, including New York City, for a while. Okay. Um, so that's the kind of it's, you know, there's a kind of cultural thing where when when people in the United States look at PR, they sort of tend to think of that form of PR, and that's also what election system reformers in the United States have picked up too. So uh, groups, for example, like Fair Vote, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's uh, pushing for voting system reform, um, have embraced uh, ranked choice voting um, as the form of PR uh, that would probably make the most sense for the United States. Now, it's a little confusing because that term ranked choice voting, there's actually two forms of it. One is a PR form where you have large multi-member districts like all PR systems have. But there's also a single member district form of ranked choice voting. And mm-hmm. so, uh, in fact, in, uh, you may know in, in the state of Massachusetts, there's a, a measure on the ballot to get that form of ranked choice voting to be used in Massachusetts elections. Yeah. So, so right now, the momentum, I think, is behind that. And if we and that's fine. I mean, any form of yeah. PR is better than uh, winner take all elections. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, because if you look at our winner take all system, uh, it, it was inherited from the British system. Right. And, uh, which was, I think invented in, I want to say 1400, somewhere around there. It was a while ago. Uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely probably past its expiration date if I had to guess, but, yeah. um, 
but but the interesting thing I think is that it seems like familiarity here is important, and right. I, I'm 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 not going to put words in the founding fathers' mouths, but if I had to think aloud about what they'd be dealing with, it's how do we transfer people from the idea of a monarch to a an elected democracy, and and really the easiest thing to do is to maybe change the least things, and so keeping a uh, winner take all removing the monarch is an easy way to make the transition. Right. Um, do you feel is familiarity important or maybe like as important in implementing these systems as does it work well, or does it work better than maybe some other system we could try? Well, familiarity is an advantage. Um, yeah. I think that's one reason why there's some voting system reform groups. Most of them um, in the United States have actually not opted for proportional representation, but for, this uh, single member district ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think a lot of their sort of practical argument is that by keeping single member districts, you're keeping what's familiar to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it makes it sort of seem like a less radical change. You're still electing one person per district. You know, you're just voting in a different way. Instead of putting an X by somebody's name, you just put, you know, number one by your first choice, number two by your second choice, number three by your third choice. Now that's all we're changing. Yeah. You know, if we move to proportional representation, there would be uh, more significant changes. You know, you would you would move from single member districts to having instead of a lot of single member districts, you would have fewer larger multi member districts where you let say five people in a district or ten people in a district. Though I think you know, I think people could make that leap. Um, and if you look at a country like Canada, for example, their electoral reform movements. Um, has focused on proportional representation rather than the single member ranked choice as the alternative. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, you know, so I, th- I think, you know, we're headed a, down a slightly different path, but hopefully we all end up in the same place. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately anything that kind of curbs the partisanship and makes, uh, those in in office more responsive to the will of the voters is a good reform. Yes. Uh, even if it's not exactly the way that, that some of us would like. Um, the, the other issue I see with proportional representation and, you know, as somebody who's an explicit advocate of it, uh, I, I don't like to paint out its faults, but, um, you know, one of the big challenges is that there's, is that of course we, you know, we can't have multi-member districts in the United States due to, um, I can't remember the name of the bill exactly, but it, you know, 1967 effectively right. they outlawed uh, multi-member districts for for reasons of civil rights, diluting the minority vote, and so that would be uh, again, if you're trying to sell a concept, um, selling something that also just happens to run contrary to civil rights legislation, I think could probably be a little bit of a problem there. Um, well, I might be I'm a little less pessimistic about that. You think so? Okay. Well, I mean, it's better than having a constitutional barrier for sure you know yep. yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> then it would be impossible so i mean that makes this look kind of small in comparison i mean so like getting rid of the electoral college you know a lot of the proposals require changing the constitution which is very very hard yes um but in this one um yeah i mean yeah certainly it would be an obstacle um and i think that's one reason why it would be kind of hard to start there you know with congress um but if you and and you know and the the movement right now is really a grassroots movement. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's electoral uh, system reform is happening on the city level. It's happening on the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, and my hope is that if that spreads 
And more and more people get used to the advantages of these, mm-hmm. you know, these newer, you know, more democratic systems that will eventually uh, increase pressure on Congress um, to get rid of that law mm-hmm. um, and to allow the states to, you know, be able to choose whatever, you know, voting system they want to elect their representatives. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase um, a, a quote by, and I can't remember his name escapes me. It's Will, it's Warren Buffett's partner. Um, but uh, he said, show me the, in, show me the incentive system and I'll show you the outcome. Mm. And, and I feel like really what, what systems like ranked choice voting, like PR are doing is they're really changing that incentive system for politicians. Uh, And again, I think for everybody listening under any system, politicians are going to be politicians. They are going to inherently do the things politicians do. However, change the calculations they need to make to get into office and you can potentially eliminate maybe some of the uglier things. I know a lot of you heading to the polls or casting votes thinking our problem is the person either seeking office or in office right now. And while there may be some truth to that, our biggest problems are institutional. And I hope this episode made it clear because regardless of who gets elected, many of the policies that will impact our lives directly are going to be the result of legislators collaborating with lobbyists, working on behalf of well-funded special interests. And they don't have to respond to public opinion because our democracy isn't set up to be sensitive to it. The zero-sum game of American politics makes it way too easy to pass off your opponent and set opponent's supporters as villains. And things like gerrymandering make it that much easier to win elections without considering your constituents. And as Doug said, in a system of proportional representation, the expectation is that elected officials will compromise and maybe actually pass legislation rather than engaging in a war of attrition with their opponent. And it's why countries like Germany and Ireland have managed to weather the populist storm we're in right now much better than winner-take-all systems such as the United States or even the UK. Look at Brexit. Now, you can find more information on Doug's recommendations at secondratedemocracy.com. I also have links to some of his other work uh, at ydhty.com in the show notes. Now, next week, the Data Monkey is back to revisit the fissures in the evangelical vote we discussed in our earlier episode with Mark Bauer. And hopefully we are still going to be able to talk about the fires out on the West Coast because that will mean nothing more terrible has happened since. Per usual, music courtesy of Norway's finest, Quellertak. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Adman Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino Jason Putney. Hope to see you next week. This is Daniel Sally. Ladios.